You know, if I was going to write a book on parenting, which really the jury is out whether or not I should because my, girl, my girls are not grown yet, but if I was going to write a book on parenting, I think I would call it Parenting in the Car. Parenting in the Car. Because I have this philosophy about parenting that if you can parent well in the car, you can parent well anywhere. A lot of parenting stuff happens in the car, doesn't it? You're, you're, and you don't have your hands, and you can't really get, so you got to parent with your voice and with your authority, and so there's a lot of breaking up of fights as you're driving a car as a parent. There's, uh, there's dealing with the uh, never-stopping onslaught of random questions from the back seat, and uh, my girls are now getting to the age where they actually want to advise me on how to drive, even though they, they can't drive. And then one of the things that you do as a parent in the car a lot is you actually are constantly preparing your children for where you're going next, where you're heading, and how they should conduct themselves when they get there. And so, like, for example, like, if, if, if you're going to Wegmans, for example, I have to tell my girls sometimes, this is a quick trip, all right? This is a quick one. We're just getting something really fast. Yes, you can go get your cookie, but no, we're not getting any candy, right? So I'm, I'm kind of getting out in front because I don't want to have that conversation in Wegmans. I want to have it before we're in Wegmans. If you're going to someone else's house, lots of instructions, right? Don't touch their stuff without asking. Eat their food and don't complain, right? Don't tell them about the argument mommy and daddy just had in the car, right? Like, so all these different instructions that you're giving. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus, in a sense, is preparing his disciples in the car. He's parenting them in the car. He's preparing them to enter into a place. Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a story to prepare the disciples because they're about to enter Jerusalem for the Passover week, for what we call the Passion Week. Look in Luke 19, verse 11. It, it, it reads this way. It says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. A parable was a story with a truth in it. Because why? Why did Jesus tell this story? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, were suppo- because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Sometimes with parables, we don't know why Jesus told them, but with this parable, we know right off the bat. Jesus told this because he was trying to prepare his disciples. He knew we are, we're headed to Jerusalem for the final time. Jesus knew that the upcoming week, the Passover week, would only heighten the expectations around Jesus. And he knew that as they were headed to Jerusalem, the expectations that Jesus would be a political Messiah, a military Messiah, a Messiah that would come and overthrow the Romans and the cultural influence of the Greeks, there was this growing certainty amongst his followers that it was happening. The tension was building. It was all sort of rising to a climax of conflict. And Jesus knew the disciples don't get it. They don't understand. So I want to tell them a story. This parable really teaches us three things. It teaches us that the kingdom of God will not be seen in its fullness until Jesus returns. The kingdom of God will not be seen in its fullness until Jesus returns. Secondly, it teaches us that the growth of the kingdom will be slow, and at times it won't seem like it's growing, but it's growing. It's certain. It's sure. And then the third thing that we learn, and this is what we're going to mostly talk about this morning, is that our responsibility is to be faithful servants of the kingdom and to be faithful until Jesus returns. So let's read this story together. In Luke 19, I'm reading to you from the ESV, beginning in verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, 
He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. That's amazing. It's a thousand times return. In verse 17, he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now that's his perspective. That's not actually who this nobleman is, but that's his perspective. And he said to him in verse 22, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. He's saying, this is what you thought I was. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he, he has 10 minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We live in a society that values the flashy and the famous. But in the kingdom of God, he's looking for the faithful. We live in a world that loves the sensational, but God's looking for those who are steady, those who are reliable, those who show up. And in this story, we're going to learn three things about how a faithful servant lives. It's so important for us to understand this because I believe many of you, your desire is to be faithful to God. That day when you stand before God, you want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, what does faithfulness actually look like? And this story is very, very helpful. We're going to learn three things this morning. And the first thing is this, a faithful servant expects the return of the king. A faithful servant expects the return of the king. How many of you remember where you were 18 weeks ago? Any remember? I know where many of you were. It was December 2nd, and you were sitting right here, and we were starting our series in Luke. We're 18 weeks in. In the first few weeks when we were in Luke, we looked very carefully at the birth of Jesus Christ. And in the birth of Jesus, we were introduced to a man named King Herod. You remember King Herod? It's kind of a wicked guy. And King Herod, it actually was very unusual that his title was king because he served under the Romans and the Romans didn't actually like to give rulers the title king because there was an emperor, there was Caesar. They didn't want other kings. They mostly weren't called kings. They were called things like ethnarchs. But Herod was such a great leader and he had joined with the Romans in defeating the Parthenians that the Romans sort of conceded and said, all right, hero, Herod, you can be king. And so they called him King Herod. Now that helps you understand why King Herod got so frustrated and anxious when he heard about a new king, the king of the Jews. He began to hear these rumors and these stories and these wise men had come from the east looking for the king of the Jews. And that's why Jared, or Herod, Jared, sorry, all the Jareds in the room. That's, that's why Herod became murderous. He became so upset about this that he ordered the death of all children two and under in the area, all male children, because he wanted to kill this child who was supposedly the king of the Jews. And so Mary and Joseph, Joseph's warned in a dream, and Joseph and Mary take off and they flee to Egypt. And they get to Egypt, and while they're in Egypt, King Herod dies, and so they return. But as they're returning, they learn that Herod has a son named Archelaus. And Archelaus is the new ruler, and Archelaus in many ways is worse than Herod. Now, when Herod died, his will gave over half of his kingdom 
to Archelaus and really gave him the opportunity to reign and to rule. But the one thing that Herod could not pass down legally to Archelaus was the title king. King Herod, Archelaus. Archelaus desperately wanted to be king, and he knew the only way he could be king was to travel to Rome, to go before Caesar, to make his case and say, Caesar, would you give me the title of king? In other words, here's what Archelaus was doing. He was doing just what this nobleman in the story did. He traveled to a faraway country to receive for himself the kingdom. That's what he did. And Archelaus gets to Rome, and to his surprise, some of his family is there, and they accuse him before Caesar. They say, no, he shouldn't get the title. And even more to his surprise, 50 Judeans, actually Jewish people and Samaritans who hate each other, they travel together. You know, if two people hate each other, they have to hate something a lot more to work together. And the Jewish people and the Samaritans hate each other, but they work together. They traveled in a group of 50. They went all the way to Rome and they stood before Caesar. They said, Caesar, you cannot grant this man the title of king. He shouldn't even be ruler. And they gave reasons. They said, this man slaughtered 3,000 Jewish people on Passover. On our high holy day, he murdered 3,000 Jewish people, piled up their bodies just to prove that he was stronger than his father, Herod. How can this guy rule over us? They talked about how, how he was corrupt and he was inept and he was ruining a prosperous land. And so Caesar listens to all of this. He goes away for a couple of days and he comes back. And the historian Josephus says this, Caesar decided to go ahead and give half the kingdom to Archelaus and give him the title ethnarch, promising that if he proved himself, he would someday make him king. And everybody returned home unhappy. Archelaus was angry. The Jewish people and the Samaritans were angry. And Archelaus, by the way, never did get the title king. He never proved himself. In fact, in about nine years, he was removed by Caesar because he was such a bad leader. Now, why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because that's the story that every person, when they heard Jesus tell this parable, thought of. That story was tucked in to the Jewish mind because it had happened in their lifetime. And so in a sense, this parable that Jesus tells, it's ripped from the headlines. Jesus is telling a story that would have made them think about Archelaus. But Jesus' parable takes a different turn than the story of Archelaus because in this story, the nobleman becomes king. That's what it means when the phrase says to receive the kingdom. He receives the kingdom and he returns to his people, not as ethnarch, not as ruler, not as governor. In this parable, he returns as king because this story is not about a wannabe king, Archelaus. It's about the true king. And this story, we, have to, we can't miss this. This story is about Jesus. Jesus is the king who leaves to receive for himself a kingdom, but who will return someday as king. What this means is Jesus is sort of giving his disciples a clue. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. I'm going to ascend into heaven. But when I go into heaven, I'm not going to be there forever. I'm going to return. I'm going to receive a kingdom for myself, and I'm going to come back. And so the faraway country where the nobleman was headed, that wasn't his kingdom. His kingdom was where he left from. It's interesting because Jesus is not going necessarily to establish a kingdom somewhere else. He's receiving his kingdom right here. And that's why he asks us to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is establishing his kingdom right here in our midst. And when he used the phrase faraway country, it meant he's, he's not going to return soon. As the disciples thought when Jesus left, he would come right back. But of course he hasn't. It's been 2,000 years since then. And every generation since Jesus left has expected his return. And we should expect his return also. And in the story, it's interesting that while he's gone, many of the people who should be reigned over by him, they don't want to be ruled by him, do they? 
It said in the story, they sent a delegation and said, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, in the story of Archelaus, they had good reasons for not wanting him to be their king. But in this story, there was no good reasons. This was a noble man. This was a good man. What do we learn here? We learn something about the human heart. We don't want to be ruled. We don't want anybody over us. We don't want authority. We don't want people telling us how we should live our lives. We don't like the idea that there's a righteous creator to whom we are accountable or the idea that there's a king to whom we own our lives or owe our lives. Think about people, people talk about Jesus. They love the idea of Jesus as their friend. Oh yeah, Jesus is my, he's my best friend. I, I love that idea. They love the idea that Jesus is their healer. That's wonderful. That Jesus is their deliverer, that he is their savior, that he is their teacher, that he is their helper. But this parable reminds us you can't have Jesus really in any of those capacities if you won't have him as king if you will not allow him to sit on the throne of your heart and reign and rule over your desires and over your preferences. And here the people in the story don't want him to be king. So this noble man leaves, but he didn't leave his servants without an assignment and without a mission. It's said in the story that he called 10 servants to them and he gave them each 10 minas. The number 10 is significant because it's a sort of a rounded number that implies this is not just to his 12 disciples. This idea is that whatever this parable is saying he gave to his followers, he gave it to all of us. Guess what that means for you this morning? You too. This is you. You've received whatever it is, you've received it also, and he's asked you to be faithful with it. The 10 disciples get the 10 minas. A mina was equal to three months' salary, so this was almost three years worth of salary. And like these servants, we all have the same command, and the command is this, engage in business until I come. And here's what I think Jesus is saying here. Be faithful to the kingdom work until I return. Don't get distracted. Don't, don't lose your focus. Don't start building lesser kingdoms. Don't start chasing after other things. Don't fall in love with this place. Build the kingdom of God here and let it, be, uh, let it come here as it is in heaven. Someday, Jesus is going to return. And in this story, we're reminded that when Jesus returns, he's gonna settle all accounts. First, with his servants, based on their investment. But then secondly, at the end of this story, we saw he's gonna settle his accounts with his enemies, those who reject his kingship. One of the key doctrines in the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus Christ will return. And I don't know if we think about it enough. I don't know that we talk about it enough, but Jesus himself said in the angels after Jesus ascended, he said, this man who you saw go, he's going to return in the same way. Someday Jesus himself is going to return to establish his kingdom in his people and for his people. Now, in the Christian faith, there's lots of different beliefs about what that will look like, when it will happen, what events will precede it, what events will come after it. That's not the point of this story, and it's not the point of this message, but here's what all Christians really believe and agree on. Jesus will return. He will return, and when he returns, he will not return. He will not come the second time the way he came the first way. He will not be a baby in a manger. He will come back ruling as a king who went to a faraway country, went to heaven to receive for himself a kingdom. And when he returns, he will settle his accounts, and he will reign and rule with us. The king is returning. In fact, the whole Bible ends with this verse. He says, the one who testifies to these things, speaking of Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. And then the author, John, says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's the last prayer in the Bible. Jesus, whenever it's your time, we're just praying, Lord, come, return, establish your kingdom. The king is returning. And my question to you this morning is, do we live like that's true? Do we make our priorities and 
choose our actions and arrange our schedules like that's true? Do we, this is a phrase maybe you've heard before, do we live our lives in the light of eternity or do we live our lives as if this is all there is and there's nothing more? We need to have an eternal perspective. It will keep us faithful and it will keep us focused on the right things. His return reminds us that he already came once, right? If somebody's gonna return, it's sort of implied. You can't return somewhere if you haven't been there already. So when we talk about his return, it helps us remember Jesus already came. And what Jesus accomplished the first time he came, that's our motivation for faithfulness. Sometimes people, um, I remember growing up and, and, uh, and I was sort of afraid of the idea of Jesus returning. Not that I didn't think it was gonna be fine and all, but it was a mystery to me and I was scared about it and I didn't understand it. But I would remember, I would sort of remind myself, well, Jesus is coming back and he's gonna settle his account, so you better be a good boy. And so I would behave. That can be helpful motivation, but the true motivation for loving Jesus is not his second return, although as wonderful it is, as it is. The true motivation for loving and serving Jesus and being faithful to him is, was his first coming, what he accomplished at the cross for us. What he, yes, he is going to come. It's a beautiful promise, but it's not a threat. It's not something to hold over your head to make yourself live good. If you can't live right without scaring yourself about Jesus coming, then you don't understand what he did the first time he came. And so his coming reminds us, his return reminds us that he already came. His return also reminds us that there is a kingdom. It's, a, it's being established. Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God, you don't have to look there and over there. Where's the kingdom? It's in the midst of you. The kingdom is already in the midst of you. It's right here in our local church. It's right here in the town of Clay. It's growing. It's slow, but it's sure. It's being established. Be sure we don't build the wrong kingdom. Sometimes I'm concerned that the American church has fallen in love with other kingdoms, and they're building other kingdoms, whether it's wealth, health, politics, whatever it is, they've sort of find their identity in these other things and make sure that we build the right kingdom. And then his return reminds us that there is a real work to do and we have a mission. A faithful servant engages in the business of God until he returns. A faithful servant expects the return of the king. All right, second thing we learn in this story about faithfulness is that a faithful servant knows that the power is in the gospel. The power is in the gospel. Sometimes this parable, the parable of the Minas, and if I'm honest, I had to Google how to pronounce Mina. I wasn't sure if it was Mina or Mina. I also had to Google how to pronounce Archelaus. But um, sometimes people get the parable of the Minas confused with the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, Jesus tells in Matthew 25. They're different stories. They're not the same story, and they have different points. The parable of the talents, it's a man who's leaving, and again, he calls his servants, and again, it's three servants, and to one servant, he gives five talents, and to another servant, he gives three talents. And to the last servant, he gives one talent. And he leaves, and when he comes back, they've invested their talents differently. And the five has returned with five, and the three has returned with three. And the one basically did nothing with his talent. And sometimes we think, well, this story here in Luke chapter 19, it's the same thing. It's about abilities. Because the story in Matthew 25 is about how do you steward your talent, your ability to sing, to, to draw, to teach, to be generous, to be hospitable, all these different gifts that we have. That's what that parable is about. That's not what this parable is about. Because notice that in this parable, he gave each of his servants the exact same amount. He gave them each 10 minas. Here in Luke, mina does not signify an ability, a talent, or a gift, but rather it signifies a deposit that's given to every single Christian, namely the gospel. Every follower of Christ is a steward of the gospel. 
And the Apostle Paul would repeatedly speak of being entrusted with the gospel. If you're entrusted with something, that means it wasn't yours to begin with, right? If I entrust you with my car and say, hey, take my car and go out and can you run an errand for me? You've been entrusted with my car and you're responsible for it until you give it back to me. And Paul says, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Let me read you one example. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says this in 1 Timothy 1.11, in 1 Timothy 6.20, in 2 Timothy 2.2. This is a theme that Paul uses over and over that we've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? We talk about that a lot here at Trinity. Our vision statement is gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Our, one of our super values is the gospel, the idea that we will, we will bring the, the only message that works using any method that works. So we talk about the gospel a lot. What's the gospel in the context of this parable? And the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that there's a king who left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to rescue his people, to do for them what they could not do for themselves, and to establish his kingdom here in his people, with his people, for his people, and through his people. And that's good news. The gospel is the good news that there's a king who left his throne. And Jesus is different from every other king. Because every other king will say, if you want to serve me, then you have to give your life to have me. And Jesus is the one king who left his throne and said, I will give my life to have you. And right at the heart of the gospel is the good news that Jesus did for us. Could you just think about that for a second? And maybe even say in your own heart, Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. Jesus did for me. In all of your trying, in all of your efforts, in all of your best behavior, Jesus still had to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And this is the gospel. And at this church, at Trinity Assembly, we are committed to the gospel. We believe the gospel. We sing the gospel. We preach the gospel. We celebrate the gospel and we share the gospel. And the power is in the gospel. You do not have within you the power to change yourself. The only power to change is in the gospel. And we look back at this story. How do we know this is true? Well, let's look at the first two servants real quick. The first servant has gained 1,000%. The second servant has gained 500% respectively on their investment. And I know what you're wondering right now. Where's that bank? Like, where's that retirement account? How do I get 100% return or 1,000% return? Wouldn't that be nice? But what's really telling is that when the nobleman, who's now the king, speaks to them, they were humble about it. They didn't take any credit for it. In fact, here was the phrase they said to him. Did you notice this? Lord, your mina has made 10 more. Lord, your mina has made five more. Do you know what most of us would have been saying? Lord, (laughs) look what I've been doing. Look what I did. Look at how wise I am. Look at how smart I am. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how respected I am. Look at all these things about me. But these servants say, get it. The power's not in them. It never was in them. The power was always in the mina. The power was always in the gospel. And so at the end of our lives, when we stand before God, if we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, here's what we're gonna say back to him. God, it was you all along. It was your work. My faithfulness was an outworking of your faithfulness to me. And the gospel does the work. The gospel has the power. Paul himself said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. The power is in the gospel. Let me read this verse to you from Colossians chapter one. Paul says, 
Verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. What is the gospel doing? It's bearing fruit and it's increasing. As the gospel bears fruit, as the gospel increases, as we experience gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life of the area, you know what we see? We see the kingdom of God become more visible. We see the kingdom of God become more tangible. We get a better understanding of who God is and what he cares about. The gospel bears fruit. It increases. It does it among us since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Now, when you understand that the power is in the gospel, here's what it does. Number one, it provokes us to be faithful to the gospel, not to settle for counterfeit gospels. There's a lot of counterfeit gospels out there. There's, there's, a, there's the gospel of moralism. If you live right, then God owes you salvation. So live the best you can and, and hope that he's grading on a curve on your day, right? There's that. But what happens with the gospel of moralism? Even if you're good, who are you grateful to? Yourself. There's no awe. There's no wonder. There's no worship. It's your performance, not Jesus' performance. It's grace. It's his performance, not yours. There's other counterfeit gospels out there that we need to be aware of. We need to be faithful to the gospel. And here's the last thing uh, before I get to my final and third point. When you understand that the power is in the gospel, it actually makes you a much better evangelist. It makes you a much kinder evangelist. It, it gives you wisdom. When you're, the word evangelist, if you're not familiar with it, is just the idea of sharing the gospel. The word gospel actually is in the word evangelist, evangel. It's the idea of sharing the gospel. Because when people don't believe that the power is in the gospel, they think the power is in their presentation. They think the power is in their convincing arguments. Now, those things can be useful, but that's not the ultimate source of the power. They think the power is in getting the timing just perfectly right. That's a lot of pressure. They think the power is in their ability to make somebody feel bad about the way they live and the choices that they've made. That's not the power. I don't know anybody who's ever placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because someone made them feel bad about who they are and how they've lived. That's not how it works. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's seeing the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus. And what it does is as we look to Jesus and we see how wonderful he is, our hearts turn away from lesser things that we used to think were beautiful. And now we see that Jesus is most beautiful. And you know what that is? When your heart turns from a lesser thing to Jesus, that's repentance. And that's why the kindness of God leads to repentance. And so when we really believe, do we really believe that the power is in the gospel? One thing as long as I'm serving here at Trinity that you can count on is that we're gonna faithfully preach and teach and sing the gospel. Why? Because we got nothing else to say? Well, yeah, sort of, but also, but also because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. The power is not in chasing other things. The power is not in, 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 in looking for, uh, play, uh, going and traveling around looking for different stuff. The power has always been in the gospel. The faithful declaration that there's a king who left his throne in heaven to come to earth to rescue his people and to establish his kingdom. Faithful servants understand the powers in the gospel. And then lastly this morning, a faithful servant gives all the glory to God. John didn't know what I was preaching on this morning, but he chose that second song that we sang where the bridge said, not to us, not to us, but to your name. All the glory to Jesus. The third servant comes along and he says to the master, Lord, verse 20, here's your mina. 
He hasn't worked with it. He hasn't conducted business. He disobeyed. He hid it away where it could do no good for anyone and it couldn't gain any additional value. In fact, one of the commentaries said this, wrapping money in a perishable handkerchief was considered back then one of the most irresponsible ways to take care of money, probably still today, by the way, and suggests that the servant was either stupid or treacherous or maybe both. According to the Talmud, the minimum requirement for securing somebody else's money when you were entrusted with it was at the very least you were supposed to bury it in the ground. There's nothing. This guy didn't even do the minimum. He just wrapped it in a perishable napkin and brought it back to the Lord because he had a misconception of who God was. And his misconception was based around this idea that the master uh, was a severe man, strict and exacting. And one of the commentators said this, the servant appears to have a fear and here's the fear of the servant. And, and as I read this, examine your own heart. Ask the Spirit to examine your own heart. Make sure that you don't have this fear too. And here's the fear. The fear that the servant had was that he wouldn't get any return for his work. All the profit would go to the master and none of it would come to him. Remember, he said, you, you, you reap where you don't sow. And here's what he's saying. I'm gonna do all the work and you're gonna get all the glory? What kind of deal is that? I want it for myself. This guy was glory hungry. He wanted the glory for himself. He was asking this question basically, what's in it for me? And let me just say to you, if you serve God, asking that question in your heart, what's in it for me? You're not serving God at all, are you? You're serving yourself. You're using God to strengthen your case for the things that you want, but you haven't really learned to be faithful. What's in it for me? In the kingdom of God, when we talk about faithfulness, it's so much more than what you do. It's why you do it. It's actually more than showing up. Showing up is a big part of it, but it's why do you show up? And as people who are faithful servants, we need to say, God, you get all the glory. I'll, I'll do my part. First off, he's doing all the work, isn't he? He's doing all the work. But I get to partner in his work, and God, you get all the glory, and I don't want the glory. We're warned in Scripture, do not touch his glory. Don't do it. You don't want it. You get your hands on his glory. It will destroy you. It will eat you up from the inside out. You don't want his glory. You want to give all the glory to God. God, everything that I'm able to do in my life, stand on this stage and sing, play an instrument, greet people, serve people, have a job, have a family, all these wonderful things. God, all the glory goes to you and none of it is mine. I'm just a faithful servant that you, in your grace and your sovereign choosing, you decided to invest into me the gospel, the only power to change my heart. And because my life is changing is because you invested in me. And so make me a faithful servant who understands that all the glory belongs to you. Maybe we're thinking, well, if God gets the glory, what do we get? You know what we get? We get the king. We get the king. The king returns and he's the greatest reward. See, they, get, they, they, they gave back the king 10 minas. A mina was like enough to buy a house. What did they get? They got cities. That's not proportionate. Why would they get 10 cities when they gave them back enough money to buy 10 more homes or 10 farms? Because the reward we get is so much more than we can imagine. It's so much greater. And the reward is not money and wealth and health and happiness and an easy life. The reward is the king. And if we're honest, what we all really want is a king, a king who loves us, a king who knows us, a king who left his throne to be us and with us. When we look at this story, we see that Jesus gave a gospel deposit to every one of his followers. We see that there are going to be enemies that attempt to deny his kingship. And don't look outside of the walls of this church for those enemies. That's inside of us a lot. 
But through his death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification, he has proven that he is king. He's gone to receive his kingdom, and he's going to receive it. And he's going to return as king of kings and lord of lords. And that's why the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's not a matter of whether or not if that will happen for every human being. It's a matter of when. And believe me, it's going to be much better for you if your knee bows and your tongue confesses before the king returns here and now. Someday the king will return. And until that day, here's the question that this parable haunts us with. Where are the faithful? Who are the faithful? God, help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted, the gospel. Let it shape us. Change how we see ourselves. Change how we see other people. Change how we treat people who don't treat us well. Change how we love people who are unlovely. Changing us and giving us hope in all circumstances, in all hard times. God, make us faithful with the gospel and our mission. Let us serve you. Come before you one day. See the king and realize this is the reward I've wanted all along, to be with the king, to know him and to be known by him. Let's pray together this morning.